good morning. Love for you now to take your Bibles, and together what we're doing is we're turning to John chapter 11, where again, for the third time, we're exploring the seventh of these signs that Jesus Christ had performed that points the way towards him dying on the cross to save us from our sins. And today, John chapter 11, what we're going to be doing is to explore verse 38 and onwards. And what I would like to do is to, in order to get some traction, to begin reading the 38th verse. And what I'll do is I'll take it down through verse 44, and then we'll have a word of prayer together. And here now, the Apostle John tells us these words. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So what this is going to do is that it's going to create a momentum towards Jesus Christ, work in the last seven days into his death and then his resurrection. And so we want to explore these verses together and to do that we're going to look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, coming before you is people who have been introduced to your saving grace. Thanking you, Father, for those watching online at this point and in the days to come as they perhaps gather friends, loved ones around the screen to be able to process what your word says. I pray that in unmistakable terms, if there are those that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they will put faith and trust exclusively in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, which is what we're praying in each of the services here today as well. Now, Father, what we want to do is to realize we are entering into the cosmic throne room. 
It's an astounding truth that we can have access to the sovereign one of this universe exclusively through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we never want to take that for granted. Never. We want to stir our hearts. Grip us. Overwhelm us with a sense that corporate worship gives us the opportunity to have a foretaste of what's to come. So, Father, as we explore your word together, we're asking that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things to again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me as we head to the West Bank, the West Bank of Israel. And what we want to do is to take just a moment in this uh, rather precarious setting, and many of the people there are aligned with Hamas, to be able to understand a little better of what has transpired at this tomb the tomb of Lazarus. As you look at the screen, what grips your attention right away in black and white format. This is not an easy path to get to. Uh, the rock, the stone, and the slopes. This is the setting by which Jesus and his followers have, have made their way, moth in particular, to the place where this extraordinary miracle is about to occur. Now, if we allow the archaeologist David Hyman to be able to take us down into the tomb, this is what you and I might be able to see together. That as we look down within, we can see that here is typically the place on the floor where the deceased would be laid, wrapped in cloths. Notice that there are various crevices, settings to lay things, all of which we'll get to in just a few moments. Notice the pathway, the steps that lead you downward into the place where the deceased will be laid. So this is the presumed tomb of Lazarus. It's in a highly Muslim area today, and you've got to take a roundabout to be able to get your way there, but it can be done. This is the setting in which we will find that Jesus Christ, as he approached the tomb, Jesus wept, according to prior verses. And the question right away, as you explore these verses with me, is this. But why would Jesus weep? After all, momentarily he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. My argument runs along this line. Jesus Christ wept not because Lazarus died. He wept because he would have to raise Lazarus back to life. Where once again, Lazarus would face illness, suffering, hardships, to do it again. The difference between Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection is this. 
Lazarus was raised to die, Jesus was raised to live. But we're getting ahead of the story, aren't we? What we want to do at this point is to understand that Jesus Christ, prior to even weeping, had gone out of his way to make abundantly clear that in his great I am statement, he would say, I am the resurrection and the life to Martha and challenge her to believe in him, which is the challenge for you and for me today as well. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we too shall have life. So what I want to do now as we explore these verses together is to draw two significant perspectives found in these verses to help us to unlock this this challenge that Jesus had uttered with regard to the fact that he is, in fact, the one who has, has resurrection power. And so the first perspective comes out of 38 down through 44, and we're going to pen it like this, if you will, that as the one who is the resurrection and the life, I want to begin here by noting with you the authority demonstrated by Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus came deep again. In fact, the Greek word carries with the idea that he is extraordinarily indignant. I think it's more than the loss of a friend. He's about to raise that friend to life. Rather, he's indignant because he's having to stare down the very thing that he's come to address. The matter of death as it relates to original sin. He is going to go to the very heart and core of the big issues of life itself. He's moved. He knows what's coming his way with regard to death, the subsequently resurrection. So this is emotionally engaging. I want you to feel it with me. And Jesus deeply moved again. What you and I are told at this point is that he, he came to the tomb. And what's interesting about what is stated by the Apostle John is that it was a cave. A stone lay against it. Now at that time in Israel, people were often buried in caves, stones, usually disc-shaped, would be rolled along a groove, you see to a place in front of the tomb, protecting its contents from animals on one hand, the elements, and occasionally robbers looking for ways in which to um, enhance their own well-being on the other. In verse 39, we are told that Jesus said, take away the stone. What's interesting, folks, is that he does not say, and here's the reason why. All he does at this point is say, take away the stone. You don't do that easily. It's been rolled into place. And furthermore, 
what you and I find at this point, no explanation is given as to what he's about to do. It's a fresh reminder to you and to me that God owes us no explanations when he requires of us our obedience. As a matter of fact, obedience becomes the test of our faith. Am I willing to do what God has called me to do before I know what it is that God is about to do? Now, this has not been done before. No explanation given. Total obedience required. Ultimate authority demonstrated. And so what's going to be the response at this point? In verse 39, Martha, she's the sister who who met Jesus on, on, on the road as Jesus was making his way toward the setting of Lazarus' home. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, By this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Now, there is no embalmment here, and furthermore, what we know from what we studied in prior weeks is that there was a Jewish superstition that the soul hovered over the body for three days, and by the fourth day, when it becomes obvious, superstition, that the one was in fact dead, the spirit would leave, depart. What Jesus is doing is demonstrating cultural awareness as to the mindset of so many people at that point. He had delayed his arrival until there would be an unmistakable sense that, in fact, Lazarus is dead. Had he come any point sooner, He, being one viewed as the one who healed the sick, this would be viewed by the population regarding him as evidence of resuscitation, but not resurrection. But by waiting until culturally they had this viewpoint that by the fourth day there is clear, unmistakable evidence of death, he will be able to say this is more than resuscitation of the ill. This is resurrection of the dead, setting in motion then everything pertaining to his own death and resurrection. Now, mind you, again, this is two miles outside of Jerusalem where opposition is mounting with regard to Jesus Christ's claims of authority as to who he is. He's about to demonstrate his own authority authority in keeping with his claim to be the resurrection and the life. Martha then verbally is attesting to the fact that her brother is in fact dead. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. What's Jesus to say? She's just heard him talk about the fact, I am the resurrection and the life. 
notice here that what Jesus does is he responds with these words in the form of a question. Jesus has a way of doing that. He responds with questions. Jesus said to her in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the way in which the apostle John would open his entire book for you and for me to be able to digest. I would argue from beginning to end, this book is all about understanding the glory of God as seen in the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so he has intentionally delayed his movements so that God's glory would be revealed. Sometimes you and I, we just don't understand the timing of God in our lives until later. You might remember two men from the church had been selected to go on a mission trip to Kenya in East Africa. Bags packed, headed to the airport, but unfortunately, or fortunately, their flight was canceled. They had a six-hour wait until the next one. Many of us have gone through those kinds of experiences. And so they waited. These two guys were big, 6'5", six, 6'4", six, they know how to take care of themselves, but for some reason, they were seated in first class, although they had not paid the higher fare for the seats. Well, during the long flight to Africa, they heard a struggle in the cockpit and discovered that there was this crazed man struggling with the pilot, and the plane began to nosedive from 30,000 to 4,000 feet quickly. But you see, these two big guys on a mission trip rushed forward, got this fellow under control. And later, they looked at each other and they agreed, God's delays are not always God's denials. There are times where God is going to intentionally delay involvement in the situation you consider to be dire. So that there will be unmistakable evidence that it is God who gets the glory and no one else. And so now you look at your own personal experience and you're saying, now where am I at in relationship to intervention matters? And so here we find that Jesus has reached a point. Now he has come upon the scene, allowing for the spices that would have been used to delay the stench to no longer be effective. Where even Martha now, who would most likely have wrapped her own brother in that tomb, Martha would say out loud and articulate for others to hear, he's dead. But but getting ahead. Now what you want to do here is to pull together what is said about Jesus. And they beheld his glory in the opening chapter with what's about to take place when they are going to behold his glory in the 11th chapter. Bearing in mind that the Gospel of John is divided in two parts and the second part, beginning with verse 12 onward, simply deals with the last seven days of Christ's earthly ministry. That's how much John wants to devote into just one week of time. This is significant. 
And so you pick it up here in verse 41. They took away the stone. Now notice that this is very similar to the way in which Jesus will utilize his disciples in the feeding of the 5,000. He wanted them to be what I'll call tactically involved, hands-on involvement, to be able to, in tangible ways, to understand the glory of God as being revealed in the miraculous realm. God will put us in hands-on situations in order for us to be able to understand God's involved in this. They took away the stone. He still hasn't told them what he's about to do. It's like Jesus, you know. He's not only delayed his, his involvement, he's delayed his words. He's not going to speak prematurely. Jesus lifted his eyes. He lifted up his eyes. And, and he says this, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Past tense. It's as if he's saying, good is done. He's communicating to the first member of the Trinity the certainty of what will be given as a right to the second member of the Trinity to raise lashes from the grave. Now, he's feeding off that question posed to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And now she's probably grappling with her faith as she watches this one who is still not giving explanation. Jesus lifted up his eyes. He's praying out loud, Father, which is an extraordinary thing in that Jewish culture because that is not how the Jew would approach the sovereign one of the universe with the opening word, Father. Yet that is exactly how Jesus Christ would begin and end his prayers on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He bookended, if you will, the beginning and ending statements and experiences on the cross with this emphasis upon his relationship to the Father. Do you feel the intimacy here? He still hasn't informed them. But I'm always struck by the prayer life of Jesus Christ as it relates to the miracles he performs. In verse 42, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around. Mark this for the second time now. Belief kicks in. That they may believe that you sent me. That there's purpose in Jesus Christ's ministry. This is all about faith. C.S. Lewis, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's true or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death. It is easy to say you believe a rope to be strong, strong as long as you are merely using it 
to call it a box, but suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice. Would you then first discover just how much you really trusted it? Or to put it another way, and very experientially, there's Ken Davis. He writes, in college, I was asked to prepare a lesson to teach my speech class. We were to be graded on our creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. My talk was the law of the pendulum. And I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs a swinging pendulum. And the law of the pendulum is this, a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. I attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top, secured it on top of a board, the thumbtack, thumbtack, and I pulled the top to one side, made a mark on the board where I let it go. The class was watching, and each time it swung back, I made a new mark. It took less than a minute. Uh, for the top to complete its swinging, come back to rest. And when I finished the demonstration, the markings on the board proved my thesis. Then I asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum. It was true, and all my classmates, including the professor, raised their hand. And the prof started to walk to the front of the room, thinking class over. Man, class just began. Hanging from the steel ceiling beam in the middle of the room was a large, crude, functional pendulum, about 250 pounds of metal. I invested, I invited the instructor, the teacher, the professor to climb up on a table, sit in a chair with the back of his head against a cement wall, and then I brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose. Holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face, I once again explained the law of the pendulum, and he had applauded only moments before. If the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this mass of metal, it'll swing across the room, return short of the release point, and your nose will not be in any danger. Well, after that final restatement of this law, I looked him in the eye and asked, do you believe He writes, there was a long pause. Huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip, and then weakly he nodded and whispered, yes. I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room. At the far end of its swing, it paused momentarily and started back, and I never saw a man move so fast in my life. He literally dived from the table, deftly stepping around the still swinging pendulum. I asked the class, do you think our professor believes in the law of the pendulum? Unanimously, they shouted, no. There is something extraordinary about the whole test of belief 
when you're faced with a crisis. And some of us have been faced with crises in these recent years. Could it be the test of faith? He said, I am the resurrection and the life, you know. I knew that you always hear me, but I, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe second time in this text that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I believe it was Chrysostom who said that it's a good thing that he said Lazarus or else every deceased person would have carved their grave at that particular point in time because he is the resurrection and the life. Now the man had died, who had died came out, his hands and feet bound bound with linen stripes and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, you see how he's involved them functionally like he did with the disciples and the feeding of the 5,000? Unbind him. Let him go. What's Martha thinking at this point? She's the one that heard him say, I'm the resurrection and the life. She knows that long cloth strips would be wrapped around him, binding the limbs to keep them straight and even the cheeks to keep the mouth shut, face cloth about a yard square. Now, furthermore, men could not wrap women's corpses, but women could wrap both men and women. Most likely, Lazarus may have been wrapped by his sisters, Martha and Mary. So there stands Martha watching her brother being unwrapped, unwrapped, and it was her hands, it was her hands that were involved in involved in the wrapping. Tiger Woods, when he won a Masters tournament and had four majors under his belt in the golf world, was watching carefully. In an interview after one of his victories, he was asked what he would say if Bobby Jones walked in the room. Jones was the one who had founded the Augusta National Golf in 1930 who died in 71, Tiger Woods thought for a moment and then responded to the news reporters, quote, I would ask how he came back. Because if I go out, and Tiger, you will go out, all I want to know is how to come back. This is a stunning moment. Lazarus, come out. Personal. Authoritative. 
authority being demonstrated. Face wrapped with a cloth. So now Jesus functionally engages those around him so that they are witnesses of what is occurring here. Unbind him. Another authoritative statement. Let him go. As the one who is the resurrection and the life, you note it with me, the authority demonstrated here by Jesus Christ. But what I want to do is to couple that with the other perspective, because furthermore, I want you to join me. We want to notice and understand the hostility generated toward Jesus Christ. You would think everybody would be applauding. But the reality is we live in a sinful, fallen world, and you're going to get a mixed response to the claims regarding the one who is the resurrection and the life, even when he offers visual demonstration. And so the chief priests, the Pharisees, are going to be notified. In verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, and they had traveled probably the two miles from Jerusalem, into this suburb known as Bethany, seeing what he did and mocked this because now for the third time in this text, believed. In the crisis moment, they are able to be firsthand witnesses to the fact that this one is, in fact, uh, the one who is the resurrection and the life. They believed. But true to form, this is life, this is humanity, this is our sinful world, but of 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, we have to understand, believe in resurrection. It was the Sadducees that did not in that time period. They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What to do. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. I find this extraordinarily interesting at this point. Because now you've got the opponents to Jesus Christ saying, what? <coughs> this man performs many signs. Now we've got even the opponents referring to this as a matter of a sign your mind begins to race. You think about such passages as, as the setting in John chapter 2 of verse 11, the turning water into wine. John tells us that this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan Galilee. Why? Manifested his glory. John 2. In verse 11. In John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He is a brilliant teacher of the law and says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Herod, 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was glad in Luke 23.8. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some signs done by him. But you see, Jesus is not some kind of religious performer. The Apostle Paul would write, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And here now, they're about to run through, run through the sign. I'm watching the World Series a few weeks back. Arizona, Texas, re-watching. That's what Christians do, you know. And so, right in the midst of the World Series, I'm sitting there it's a few days after I'd just gotten back from having a stroke, and I won't say the name of the guy who was running the bases, but he was making his way around second toward third, and the third base coach had put up his hands. It was the sign to slide, stop. But what struck me at this point is that the runner went right through the sign, straight toward home plate where he was tagged out. And I was standing there. I was also waving slide, which is what you do when you're in physical therapy after having had a stroke, you see. And so... If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. They're going to run right through the sign. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I mean, they're self-absorbed, not Christ-absorbed, but one. One of them, Caiaphas. Now, what we've got to understand about Caiaphas is that he's the high priest. He, he was in position for 18 years, but he was of the Sadducee group and did not believe in resurrection. He was put in place by Roman authorities. This is a clash of authority. He's concerned politically. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish Oh, Caiaphas, you're speaking beyond what you even fully realize because John in 51 says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, substitutionary atonement. God in his sovereignty was using a religious unbeliever to prophesy. This astounding stuff. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God, speaking of the end times, who are scattered abroad. And so what I want you to be able to see here with me in verse 53 is that from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The one who has authority over death, they're going to try to put to death. Do you capture the irony now in all of this? This is astounding stuff. Uh, join me. Let's go to Caiaphas's home for a second. We're on an Israeli tour. Make our way to the house of Caiaphas. I've walked this road. It, it's, it makes its way 
it's wide, makes its way to what comes next is this complex where Caiaphas lived and could hold meetings of the Sanhedrin. It would be the place where Jesus Christ would eventually stand and stand before him, where once again Caiaphas, who would be a disbeliever in ideas of resurrection, would stand before the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. But back to this text. You're up to, you're up to verse 54 at this point. Because now, here you have Jesus. We're told here that Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And, and there he stayed with the disciples. So as the map appears on the screen, what I want you to be able to see is that here is where Jesus is. And he's going to make his way roughly about 11 miles uh, West Bank area make his way towards Ephraim, and there he's going to invest time with his disciples, most likely applying the principles of I am the resurrection and the life as to what Lazarus has just experienced to what Jesus is about to experience so that they are well prepped for what is about to occur in the next seven days. Astounding. And so out of all that, I'll march down to verse 57 to just summarize. Out of all this, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So out of all that, we're back to Lazarus' tomb. So join me as once again we're in the West Bank. We've done a roundabout. We've made our way to this presumed tomb of Lazarus. It's not easy to walk around. The steps are difficult to handle. But if we pause and do what Professor Hyman would have us do and enter down into the tomb, which appears next on the screen, lo and behold, we would see this is where <coughs> Lazarus would have been laid. And as we ponder that, we understand a little better why Jesus wept. Not because Jesus um, saw in him someone he loved, one who died, but rather because Jesus would have to raise him back to life to go through illness, suffering, and death again. But the difference between Lazarus' resurrection and Jesus' resurrection is simply this once again. Lazarus was raised to die. People, Jesus was raised to live. And three days later, he proved his point. And we give God all the glory. Let's stand together. And Father, out of all this, you call upon people to believe. But we know we live in a very divided culture. There were those, even when they were given visual demonstration, there were those who believed and those who did not. And this is the way it is in a fallen world. But I'm praying right now for that one watching online. Do a great work. 
show them the evidence that stands with the claim of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He died so that we might live. He died and three days later, he would live. I pray for those in the prior service, this one as well. Stir hearts. If there's one who comes into this world, into this worship experience, yeah, they were physically alive but spiritually dead. I pray now by putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they will realize what rebirth, new birth is all about. I pray for salvation for that heart. So thank you now for each and every one. Pour your spirit upon us, and we thank you, Father, that you've given us these seven signs that point towards our risen Savior. And we'll give you all the praise, all of it, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.